about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ash, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, 
Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. It's great to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, welcome. Great to have you in church tonight. If you're online and you're new as well, welcome. Great to have you. We are walking through the book of Esther, which is a fascinating and complicated book. And what we come to this evening is a passage, and particularly a verse, that is probably what Esther is known for. It's this verse right here. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's a wonderful statement of a confluence of events that leads Esther to the precipice of a huge decision that will define her life. People call this an Esther moment and have described themselves as having similar Esther moments, moments of confluence, which feel poignant and strong and significant and powerful moments. These are the moments in life that feel defining. That they kind of make us who we are. Uh, Some artwork came up in the pandemic around this verse, uh, in particular around nurses. You can get this on a shirt if you want for your favorite nurse later today. What happens in the book of Esther is that every character is static. Every character does not change. Except one, Esther. And in this chapter, we see her undergo a huge transformation in real time. And what we learn from it, and what we learn from this moment, is that really we become who we are through the actions we take. There are certain determinative moments in life that just summon us to respond. And as we respond to them, they in some way become the making of us. And that's what we see in Esther today, such a moment as this. And when we looked at the whole book of Esther, written to Jews far from home, trying to live in foreign places, uh, without God, without Torah, without land, this, I think, is the chapter that was supposed to speak most profoundly to them in how to respond to their circumstances. If last chapter was about the making of a horrendous evil, this chapter is about the making of moral courage. And it is a summons to God's people, wherever they are, to undergo Esther's transformation from being passive to being active, to finding moral courage in a difficult time, through responding and acting to what is in front of you. Esther in this chapter starts as a compromised woman in a difficult place and ends a hero. And it's a summons to us to have the same courage. In smaller courage we can find in ourselves. To those moments when our world is shifting around half or act on behalf of others in a profound way. These moments can similarly be the making of us. 
the making of our own moral courage. So four things about the making of moral courage today from Esther, chapter 4 and 5. And the first one is this. It all begins with waking up to what is right in front of you. Esther in this chapter is not ready and waiting for something to happen. She's not in the palace, best heroic life. This moment comes on her. And what happens at the beginning of this chapter is she has to wake up to what is in front of her, her circumstances and her power. There's this wonderful tension as this passage starts between Mordecai and Esther, and the, 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 I learned of all that had been done, Haman and Xerxes, Haman and his plot to destroy all of the Jewish people through the whole Persian Empire. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gates because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Mordecai is desperate. He leads the whole Jewish people in the, in the citadel of Susa in mourning and desperate crying out. And he goes to the king's palace because that's the only place to go, but he can't go in. He's got no authority to go in, and he's not, allowed, he's not dressed to go in, apparently. No tuxedo. Esther is inside the palace, and she knows nothing of what has happened. Even though it's happened in the palace around her, between Haman and Xerxes, it happened in a private room, and she's not a political person at this point. So you have Mordecai at the gate, desperate and wailing, and Esther off living her best queen life in the middle of the palace. As the chapter starts, we almost want to yell at Esther, you've got to wake up now. Now you have to understand what is happening and the position you have that Mordecai doesn't have outside the palace. Mordecai, and she was in great distress, Esther was. She sent him clothes to put on instead of his sackcloth, presumably so she, he could come into the palace and talk to her. But he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. And then Mordecai wakes Esther up. He sends her a copy of the text, the edict for the annihilation of the Jews, and, and, and tells Hathak to, to explain it to her and to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy, to plead with him for her people. Mordecai says, look at what is happening. This has been sent out through the whole of Persia. And you have to go in to the king's palace and plead for your people. Mordecai is waking her up to what is happening and the position and power that she has. And this is the beginning for her. As it is the beginning for all of us. Often we think if we're going to have a heroic moment that we'll be ready for it and waiting. Uh-uh, not true. Often we think it starts inside of us for our own life. Uh-uh, generally not true ever. If you're wondering how to live out this vision of life that God has in this chapter, look at what is in front of you. What has God placed in your life? What people 
what circumstances, what is happening at work, in your neighborhood, in your house, in your relationships, in your family, on your street, in your nation. David Brooks puts it this way. In the scheme of things, we don't create our lives. We are summoned by life. The important answers are not found inside, they are found outside. This perspective begins with the concrete circumstances in which you happen to be embedded. What do you need to wake up to? David, as he's making this point in his book, speaks of Frances Perkins, the first woman in the United States to be a member of the the president's kind of secretaries. She was a secretary of labor. And early in her career, she set out to, to take on a role in politics. But there was this moment in the earliest part of her life in the early 20th century that scarred New York and defined her life. There was this huge factory fire in a cotton factory, 10 stories high, and everyone on the 8th story trapped by the fire below, and hundreds of workers died because of mismanagement, because there were no escape routes, because no one knew how to deal with fires, and no one cared for the workers. For Frances Perkins, this was a summons that her political career was not about her, but about these things that kept happening in her city. And from without, she was summoned to respond. That's where it starts. What is in front of you? What power do you have? But then, what does it take? We need to discern what to do and how to do it. You know, in the, in the scriptures, there's no book married to a foreign king when you need to deal with a delicate political situation. No handbook on that. There's no handbooks on how to deal with Instagram and the way it disciples your life. There's no plan on how to be a banker in a time when everything revolves around packaging different types of debt. Many things in life if not all things in life, are not clear-cut, and so they require discernment and deliberation to work out how to respond and what to do. And it's no less than what we see happening here in this chapter. Most of it is made up of a back and forth between Mordecai and Esther about how to respond and what to do. Mordecai says to her, you've got to go to the king and you've got to plead for your people. But Esther straight away says, that's a death sentence. I walk into the king's presence. Is, I'm, see, all the king's officials and the people of the provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned has one law. They'd be put to death. It takes the king to extend his scepter and to reverse it. So you're automatically dead unless he declares you alive, right? You want me to walk in and forfeit my life on the spot. What kind of plan is this? I haven't even been in his house for 30 days. He hasn't summoned me. In response, Mordecai just ratchets up the stakes of what is happening and clarifies for her in two ways what might be happening and helps her discern the moment. On one hand, 
He just helps her realize how much responsibility, moral responsibility, she has in this moment. Do not think, he says, that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Let's pause the logic for a second. Mordecai expects the Jews to be saved somehow. We'll come back to that. That's crazy in itself. And he says, when that happens, if you did nothing, they will come and kill you. And as we read between the lines of it, we're assuming that if she does nothing and the Jews know that she was in the palace, they'll presume she colluded with them or that she was such a coward that she wouldn't use her power to help them. What Mordecai is clarifying is that she has a moral responsibility and obligation to her people. We all have this. We are all tied together by all kinds of debts and obligations to the people we love and know. Not because of our choice, but because of where we were born and who we know and the kind of jobs we're part of and the kind of communities that have formed us. We just are born into these responsibilities one to another. And sometimes when we refuse to use the things that are ours, we fail the moral responsibility that God has given us. And it's right for us to discern in the different parts of life the different responsibilities we have to the people we love or the people we work with or the people we serve. That's one half of this. But the other half is this wonderful statement at the end. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows, he said. He really means who knows because he doesn't know. He's like, you might die. He mightn't raise his scepter. This might be for nothing. Very likely possibility. You know, this is where we get clarity about this story. There's no prophet in this story saying, thus saith the Lord, go into the, into the, the king's court and everything will be fine. No one said that. They don't know. No one knows. Esther is in that way like us in our situation. We don't have any personal prophets declaring to us what to do and what will happen if we do it. We live in uncertainty. Even if we take on moral actions and we do things, they might go really badly or perhaps catastrophically and get no way near what we hope to happen. That's a very real possibility in the life we live. But on the other hand, doesn't it seem crazy, Esther, Mordecai says, that somehow you became queen and now this has happened? Maybe this happened for a reason. Maybe there's a strange confluence of things happening here and you were made to do this. Maybe this is your moment. You know those moments, don't you? Where a strange set of things just seem to come together for reasons you don't really understand? And you kind of feel like, oh, maybe I'm meant to be here doing this thing right now with this person who I just met on the bus who has this problem and I'm talking to them and it's going really well. 
often I feel in my life when I'm walking places and I'm late, I often run into someone I need to talk to, and I'm like, oh, this is why I'm late. That's interesting. Now I'm really late. But see, the process that this is deliberating, you have moral responsibility. Maybe God is in this. I don't know if this is going to go very well, but we need to do it anyway. This weighing up of roles and responsibilities and likely outcomes and what could happen and what needs to be done regardless. I know of one of the trade commissioners in the Middle East. He's retired now uh, for, for Australia and he, for most of his life, was kind of a Christian, but not really, by name only. And then a, something really awful happened in his life, really awful, that then brought him back to faith in a really real way for the first time. And what happened in that moment was he started to discern his role as a trade commissioner very differently. One of the things happening in his country and the countries around him was the use of the death penalty for a whole range of reasons in ways he just couldn't accept. So he decided with this thing in front of him that he had a moral obligation in his role to advocate on behalf of the end of the death penalty in these, in these areas, because he could. And he felt like he had to use his weight for something, and this was the cause at that time to go after. He noticed in some of the really complex nations either side of him that it was really hard to get resources for people planning churches. So he smuggled some pastors between countries using his diplomatic power, risking their lives, and they knew it at the time, to try and get support for the gospel in places where it couldn't get to. Because it had, the gospel had to get out. And so it was worth the risk. You know, it's like when a parent or someone you love gets really sick and there's just this complete pull on you to need to respond, to need to love, to care, to drop all other things and prioritize their care and what they need at that time. This moral clarity of what is required of you in that instant, in that moment. These acts of discernment are part of our life and we need to take them seriously. But what's needed after that is action. Being awake and discerning are not enough. They would not have made the book of Esther a very interesting story. It's the action that mattered. And Esther decides to act. And she finds herself as she takes costly action. Now when I say that, I'm not saying that she just leaps blindly in the dark. She forms a plan. She says to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days or nights. Let's prepare for this. And, and, and we'll fast too, and then when it's done, I'll go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Wonderful. Wonderful courage. Her decision that her responsibility and her role demand this action of her regardless of the consequences. And so she goes into the king's presence, walking in. Can you imagine walking in knowing that your life could just end? This, is, this could be it. And Xerxes raises the scepter and says, I'll give you half of my kingdom, after half my kingdom, whatever you want. What's your request, Esther? And she says, come drink wine with me. 
you and Harmon, we'll drink wine together out the back. You're like, what is happening here? This is odd. And they go to the drink wine together at the banquet. And then Xerxes says to Esther again, so what do you want? After half my kingdom, you can have it. She's like, I think we should drink wine again tomorrow. That'd be a really good idea. You and Harmon, you come, we'll drink wine again tomorrow. At which point you're thinking, he's already promised to give you everything twice. What are you doing? Just get on with it. But Esther is laying a trap, and she's managing a very volatile man. And so she's very slowly, concretely, winning his approval and his favor so that nothing goes wrong, and she's drawing Harmon in at the same moment to take him down. She's using all of her charisma, her good looks, her psychology, and political power to take this on. Because when we discern what to do, we also need to discern how to do it. The action itself, doing the thing, the doing of the thing matters. And Esther does it thoughtfully and powerfully. And it's wonderful that she finds herself as she risks her life. You know, no matter what happened next, even if it ended in her death, she finds herself by willingly laying down her life. These actions, these sacrifices, they make us. Jesus said it himself that to, to save your life is to lose it, to follow him by taking up your cross. That courage and cost always go hand in hand in the economy of discipleship. And it's in those moments when we plunge courageously but thoughtfully into the things that God has in front of us that we become ourselves. You know, recently in my wider family, there was a toxic pattern of relationship that was getting really, really worse, like really lots worse. And I started to wake up to the fact that I had some moral responsibility for the fact if it goes really bad and I say nothing, it's partly my fault. And I'd kept myself out of it for a long time, and I got to the point of prayerfully discerning that I had to speak up and say something really different and do something really different in that family, my family, I hadn't done before. And I knew it would come at cost to friction and difficulty. It might annoy people, and it might not go anywhere. But I had to do it. And so I did. And it hasn't gone great. But that's discipleship. Discerning and acting at cost for the things that God has put in front of us to respond to. But at this point, you might be thinking, oh, great. So you want me to discern things, risk everything with uncertainty as to the result. Great advice. Thank you very much. I think I'm going to go home now. There's one more thing in this passage that we'll finish on that helps. We can have courage. We can do these things because of the freedom of our God. You know, actually, at the end of the day, this chapter, the most important action is not Esther's. God's. It's wonderful watching this chapter without a mention of God, but seeing how hard the writer has to work to make sure God isn't mentioned. I mean, deliverance of the Jews will arise from another place. 
somewhere else out there, some other person, some other thing, not God. Or fast for me, Esther says. Why not fast and pray to God? That's what the rest of the Old Testament says. Fast and pray as we do to God. He's not mentioned. The author has to strain to keep God out of this chapter, but the reason why he's keeping him out is because when it all goes right and all starts turning upside down, as we'll see in Esther in the weeks to come, we can say that God did not come because he was asked to. God did not come because he said he would come. God did not come because Esther and Mordecai were great, fantastic Jewish people. God came freely because he wanted to, in his own grace and mercy. He decided to act in his own absolute, unconditional, unfathomable freedom. As Esther steps out, God acts in and through and among her freedom with his own to bring about his purposes. And that's what we can be sure of too. Except we have greater clarity than Esther does. What is God doing in his absolute freedom? What is he doing in and around all our costly decisions as we follow our Lord Jesus in this life? Every single time, friend, in your family, when you step up to difficult relationships, when at work you bear with difficult circumstances, when you're at school and you deal with the pressure coming your way again and again, when you step up and say things different to others, when you step back and abstain from things that are evil, every time, even if it goes catastrophically badly, God is making you like Jesus. In all things, God works for the good of those who loved him. For he has predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, if you respond to what is in front of you with courage, acting with cost, it might go terrible, terrible. But every single time, your God who is free is doing this. Every time bringing those acts together and making you more and more like Jesus. His will and freedom is done in and around your own. So you will lose nothing. So what is in front of you tonight? What is God putting in front of you? What issues and what power? What people and what problems? What will be the making of your moral courage this week? Step knowing it's not about you, but about him acting in and around and through you. For Jesus' sake, amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.